This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning Katie Henman, an executive producer of special programming at CNN. Katie has been a strong presence behind the camera at CNN for five years, several with Jake Tapper on his Sunday show, State of the Union, and his daily show, The Lead. Before joining CNN, she was a producer at Nightline for ABC and spent 10 years with ABC News. She talks with us about the behind-the-camera role of a producer in the production of Daily Network and Cable News. Katie, you've had a, an amazing career uh, since you. since leaving here. So go through it a little bit for us. Um, well, let's see. I left here and graduated in 2003. Knew I wanted to do news. Didn't quite know what. <laughs> um, I'd been lucky enough when I was here, I was a Cutler Scholar, which was amazing because right. they financed um, my internships, which was really really helpful. And it, I think it is true that internships are kind of the gateway. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky enough, I think after my sophomore year, I interned at ABC News Nightline. This was back in the Ted Koppel era. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was a pretty heady place to be. And it made me realize that there were these things called producers that I didn't really have a great grasp of what that meant as a student. You know, you saw people on TV and you assumed that if you wanted to do broadcast journalism, you were going to be the one in front the of the camera, Ex- right. Exactly. Um, and so that time in Nightline, you know, Nightline was just full of a really amazing producers who were amazing journalists in their own right. And they really shaped a lot of the stories and they did a lot of the writing and they were out in the field. And so it was, it was really eye-opening for me that I thought, hey, what I really want to be is a producer. Um, it also meant I didn't have to like move to Sioux City, <laughs> Iowa and be a one-man van, which seemed appealing. Um, so so I found a way back to ABC. I, I, I went to work first for local news part-time, lived with my parents, you know, did right. all the stuff you do when you're getting on your feet. Sort of biding time. Exactly, right? until something opened up and ABC had a program, they called them desk assistants. It was basically... Lowest man on the totem pole, you made minimum wage, you worked terrible hours, and you got people, you know, shafts of paper and coffee. Um, and I loved it. I, it was just great. I knew instantly this was the place that I there, wanted there's, to be. There's something about that feeling of being there, isn't it? I, no oh, matter totally. What, no I mean matter that, what you're doing, it's just being there. Yeah. I mean, that first um, summer, I remember I was working the shift. Um, ABC had a little booth in the Hay Adams Hotel, which is right across from the White House. Right. And so basically, right. it was like a broom closet, but it had a window that overlooked <laughs> the White House. And so the anchors would sit there when they wanted to show that they were in Washington. Sure, the, the, with the background. Exactly. And so um, Peter Jennings was there. It was the day of Ronald Reagan's funeral. And I was in the booth with him. And my, my job was just to print out papers. You know, I had no editorial. Nobody wanted my editorial contributions. But I thought, wow. I'm in the place where it's all happening, and it was amazing, and I was hooked. 
But you stayed at ABC for about 10 years and became the producer that you always wanted to be, right? Um, Yeah, I was. I mean, I I definitely worked my way up from the bottom and I and I moved from, you know, desk assistant to assistant producer to producer, field producer, producer. It all happened um, in retrospect very quickly. Of course, at the time, none of it was happening (laughs) fast enough for me. (laughs) All felt like your feet were dragging, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I I remember actually I had an amazing boss um, around a couple years into my time at ABC. Ted Koppel left. There was a new Nightline boss in town, and the show moved. It had been it had been exclusively in Washington, and then the show split, so it was half in New York and half in Washington. So, for a while, I was working in Washington under the Washington bosses, you know, the senior producers in Washington. And the big boss did not want to hire me. There was an opening for I think it was maybe a writer, and he didn't want to hire me. He said I wasn't experienced enough, and he wasn't interested. So, one of the senior producers sort of secretly <laughs> let me start working. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was working on the Sunday shows. So that was a Wednesday through Sunday shift. Right. And for about six months, I would come in secretly off the books on Mondays and Tuesdays and work for Nightline. Um, and I did it for so long that by the time another job opened up, the senior producer went to the big boss and said, she's actually been doing, <laughs> she's actually been doing it for six months. It was very hard for him to say We no. have somebody experienced already, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, that's what journalism is it's like doing the stuff that nobody nobody else wants to do sometimes and you know churning it out so when you left abc did you leave when nightline sort of went away no i was actually um a huge part of my experience was being at nightline and actually that new boss opened up a lot of opportunities for young people like me and and really had a lot of faith in us and shoved digital cameras which were new at the time into our hands and said go out and see what you can get. So um, it was an amazing time for me because it allowed me, Nightline allowed me to do all kinds of different stories. Um, I had got a ton of experience in the field. I mean, I covered elections there, but I also, you know, I ended up... (laughs) I ended up at a shoot at the Kardashians' house. <laughs> I did investigative stories and learned how to do that. We did, you know, our fair share of celebrity interviews and, um, you know, buzzy little you minute had, and a half. You had to have that mix. Yeah, you? yeah, I had to have that mix. And it, it was really helpful to me because I find at this point in my career, there's not a lot of kinds of stories that I haven't had some experience doing. And it was back in the day uh, – where you actually did stories as opposed to uh, analysis and and talking to pundits or or, or analysts, right? Yeah, I mean that that show was that all it was altogether different. It was it was definitely very different than what I do now at CNN for sure. Um, I think part of that has to do with network versus cable. Part of it has to it's do with the, the news cycle and, and, that we're living yeah. through. Um, but yeah, it was very story driven. And so we, you really had to figure out what's the narrative, who are the characters. Um, and, and by and large, the producers did that. I mean, that's not to say, obviously, there wasn't a lot of contribution from the on-air um, talent. But, it, you know, there were a lot more producers than there were um, correspondence and so a lot but that of producing helped you tell stories. Right? Oh yeah, I, mean, I, le- I learned was... how to tell stories. I learned how to write. I learned how to craft a narrative, um, find great characters, which are the most essential part of any story in some ways. Um, did so you do a lot of the writing? Is, I as did. I did most of the writing. I would say. Um, I mean, listen, you always want 
part of what I learned is how to write for other people. Sure. And so, you know, am I in writing their style? Am I or... writing in Jake Tapper's voice? Am I writing in Cynthia McFadden's? Am I writing in Christiane Amanpour's voice? And and um, but I think writing is the most important skill that any journalist can have. If you can't figure out how to convey with precision, clarity, um, conversationality, what you want to say, then you know, that's sort of the baseline. And it crosses all media, doesn't it? It totally <laughs> writing, does. Writing is the foundation of it all. It is. And people think TV is about pictures, and it is to some extent. Um, but if you, can't, if you can't write, the pictures aren't going to save you, by and large. So when, at what point did you move to CNN, and did you go there directly from ABC? I did. I mean, I had an incredible run at ABC. Um, uh, towards the end of my time there, I worked with Christiane Amanpour. We covered the Arab Spring together, which was really an amazing time in my professional life. Um, but I was just getting – one thing that had happened was Nightline was getting moved. They were moving Nightline from 1130 to 1230, and that was really late. hard. You know, it was like even at 1130 um, – you knew that there were a lot of people watching. You heard from people out in the middle of the country. We had a big, like, night shift contingent, people who would work. Right. Yeah, you know. But you often didn't feel you were part of the daily conversation in the same way. And when they wanted to move the show to 1230, it was a big blow. Well, that's, that's an odd time because you don't know whether you're reflecting on the day past or you're projecting on the day future, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was just sort of disheartening. You felt at times that even your own colleagues weren't watching the show. It was just on so late. So that was um, – that happened to be happening at the same time as Jake Tapper, who had been my colleague at ABC and who I'd worked a lot with at ABC, was leaving to go to CNN. So he sort of convinced me to make the jump. And um, and so we joined CNN together at the same time, and we launched The Lead, which is Jake's Monday through Friday show. Um, and it was an exciting time for CNN because Jeff Zucker had just um, taken over as head of the network, right. and it felt like there was some new life being breathed into CNN. Talk about that relationship between producer and talent. You obviously have had it with several people, but most recently with with Jake. How important is that relationship? I think it's hugely important on both fronts. I mean, I think um, I think one of the reasons I've had been able to have that relationship with people is because I understand that, like, if your face is the one out there, that's an enormous amount of pressure. That everything you say. People assume it's coming out of your mouth. You're responsible for it, you know. And I think one of the things that a good producer can do is make that person feel safe and know that I'm never going to write a line of copy for you that I know that that unless I know it's true. So you're never going to have you're never going to say something. You're that, never going to get in trouble. You're because never going to get in trouble because of me, exactly. And and that's that's important. And really and is. I think you know people at home don't understand that maybe whoever's on screen. It's a it's a collaborative it's collaborative work. We're all working together to make it happen. But if something bad happens, all the blame immediately shifts onto them. Um, and then the other really important thing is just you know that I think I you don't necessarily have with every single person you work with, but that Jake and I do have, and it's really helped us both. Is that we do kind of share a, a worldview and a way of looking at things, and so. Um, we want to do some of the same things in some of the same way. We want to have humor. We want to have um, like a little bit of levity sometimes about what we're doing, but we also want to hold 
people's feet to the fire. But it almost becomes like a platonic couple that 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 you end each other's sentences and you very, think things. Very much of, so. Right, and trust right. me, I've had to correct plenty of people who thought we were a real life couple. <laughs> Travel bickering in airports or whatever, people assume that you're married to each other. But, but it is a relationship, a professional relationship where you have that symbiosis. Definitely. And, 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 and you also have your bickerings and your... Totally. I mean, we definitely don't agree about everything. Um, but I do think when you can find that it's, you know, in your whole, the same way in your whole lifetime, there might be a handful of romantic partners that you really love and really understand you. If you're lucky in your professional career, you'll have a handful of creative partnerships that feel that way, that I really get this person and this person really gets me. And it's so fulfilling when that happens. Now, you're also expanded. You're out doing town halls now and and special programs. That's a new dimension, right? Yeah. You know, um, CNN, we, the town hall is like such an old format. I mean, Ted Koppel was doing it back in the 80s. It, it really is, but it's had a resurgence. It's definitely had a resurgence. I mean, I was lucky um, when I was um, – the EP of the Sunday show, it was during the campaign and we were doing all these presidential debates and I got to be part of that, which was an amazing experience. And then we just sort of kept going after the campaign because we found that people were so responsive to the format. So, um, so yeah, we do a lot of these. And and to me, it it sort of harkens back to one of our most central missions, which is holding politicians' feet to the fire, making them talk directly to the people who elected them. I think that's really important. And, um, can be hard to come by these days. Right, so I think right. that's one of the reasons the audience finds it so satisfying. The, the news talent that that does a um, town hall and keeps it going, uh, do they do their own preparation or what is your role in helping them prep? How, how does that work? Give we, us sort of a behind-the-scenes glimpse at yeah. that. Yeah. Um, we have a pretty – well-oiled machine at this point. We do a lot of preparation because I think really the key for the talent is the more they know when they're sitting up on stage, the less likely they are to be surprised by anything. You know, you want to put them in a position where they already know all the stuff that's going to come out of the politician's mouth. And they mouth. don't look shocked. Either. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, listen, what, what, there's nothing more satisfying for us when we watch a debate um, when we prepare for presidential debates, we do mock debates where the the participants in our in our setting play the roles of the politicians. And I mean, it's deeply satisfying when we watch the actual debate and one of the politicians says the thing we thought they were going to say. Um, there is a lot of time spent doing that. You know, politicians are not that hard to figure out in some ways, but we spend a lot of time reading what they've said in other venues. Um, this is something we would do for the Sunday show, too, to prep. We spend a lot of time doing the research so that we're prepared when the time comes and um, and we can prepare our talent to, to be ready to, you know, diffuse any, any lie. You know, they, they also have to be ready, like, if somebody lies about something to say, that's a lie and no. And, and that's very hard to do on the fly. It's much easier to do if you've prepared ahead of time. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders 
in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You and I are having a conversation that's quite a bit different than if you're in an interview type of situation. And I've always taught my students over the years that interviewing is an adversarial process. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be hostile, but it's it's a give and take <laughs> to see who sort of comes out on top during, during the interview. How do you approach interviews and, and how much is it determined by the person that you're interviewing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's usually de- determined by the person you're interviewing and also the context. I mean, if you're doing a human interest story. Well, that's a softer. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think one thing that is constant is that you're a surrogate for the viewer. And so I try to think about that a lot. What do people want to know the answers to? And what would their reaction be like? Don't you know? Sometimes it's like, give me a break, man. I know that's not true. Or you know, it could be a, a more sympathetic if it's in a different context. So try to be a surrogate for the viewer. And the other thing again is when we're talking about interviewing politicians, which is what I spend a lot of my time on now. They all will try to lie and obfuscate, regardless of who they are. Or what their politics are. That's one thing I've found all politicians have in common. It comes with the territory. (laughs) It comes with the territory. They all have different ways of doing it. Liberal, progressive, conservative, doesn't matter. All of them. I mean, I'll I'll touch on this in my um, remarks tomorrow, but it's like if you start studying them, you notice the different ways that they do it. Like Bernie Sanders will take any question and make the answer about economic, you know, it bri- inequality. It, it bridges. <laughs> exactly. It, it, back at back at his heyday, Jesse Jackson could do that. If his if his agenda was the homeless and somebody asked him an environmental question, the environment is very important, especially to the homeless. And then he was off on <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I these guys have been around for a long time for a reason. You know, they, they really they, have they figured out how to do this and they spend a lot of time talking to reporters. So um, So you know that uh, how he's going to do that. Yeah, I mean, what you know, with Trump, we didn't know because he hadn't been on the scene in the, in that way um, for the same period of time. So a lot of what we had to do was adapt and sort of learn what he was sending us and and figure out an, uh, the way to respond, um, which I think we discovered around the time Trump started refusing to do CNN <laughs> interviews. <laughs> <laughs> just just about probably. <laughs> So I assume the talent, though, uh, these are not newbies. They've been around the block, too, and they understand the same things that you do. Uh, Yeah, although it's interesting. I mean, one thing I I find that for anyone, even if they're very experienced, it is so hard to stay truly in the moment and really listen to what the person's saying and not be thinking about your next question. Or, or somebody talking in your ear. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I see, I would say that's where the person talking in your ear comes <laughs> in. Because sometimes I'm able to just purely listen to the interview and I don't have, 
you know, say I'm in the control room and and Jake's on set. Like, I don't have the distractions of the lights or the thinking about the next question or whatever. There's all kinds of distractions when you're the person on television that sometimes it's easier in a way you can listen in a different way if you don't have that pressure on you. And so time cues. And, exactly. And all of those exactly. Things. So um, so I find that's that's one of the things that that is helpful is you you hear different things, you notice different things. Whatever. So, so how do you prep then for for a, an interview uh, other than the topic? Do you, do you look at past interviews and patterns of how people answer questions, especially politicians? Definitely. Spend a lot of time doing that. I also, um, I would say that's a big part of the preparation process is just reading what they've already said and looking, you know, if you know, we pay a lot of attention to how we construct a question, because sometimes that is the thing that will stop them from being able to the way to answer the way they've answered in the past. So just tweaking a question um, to try and elicit a different kind of response, a more nuanced response or a more direct response. Um, I also spend a lot of time thinking about um, things that are like in the ether that may not be, you know, the one story of the day, but sometimes it's that that thing that you ask that's a little bit out of left field, they're not prepared for. You know, politicians spend a lot of time with their staffs preparing for these interviews, getting of ready. Right. And so if you can find something that like comes at them a little bit from a different angle, um, sometimes they're not prepared and sometimes because they're not prepared, they make news because <laughs> um, they weren't expecting it or they don't have the exact um, the exact right question. So I like to always kind of throw in some kind of wild card thing like that. How- let me back up here. I, I spent the bulk of my career as as a trial lawyer, and what you're describing is exactly what I would do in preparing a cross examination: uh, how to elicit the answer you want to the question, and <laughs> and not allow the wiggle room <laughs> and to let somebody wiggle out of it. But the other thing that I would do, and I wondered if you do this as well, I would really watch the person. I would really watch their body language or their sort of tells, like if they were playing poker, of how they were reacting to to a question. Do you watch facial? Yeah, I mean, listen, and, I, I'm not and response. Yeah, I'm not trying to catch them in a lie necessarily. I assume they're lying most of the time. If they're politicians. <laughs> That's a given, right? <laughs> um, but I do, again, to be that surrogate for the viewer, to be yeah. really in the moment, listening to the conversation, watching the body language is really um, important. And and I do try, I do do try to do that. You know, you'll notice sometimes Hillary Clinton's a good example. If you like, if you ask a question she doesn't like. It becomes very clear in her body language, and she it's, shuts down. It's a down. rigidity. It, it, you almost see the curtains come down. Exactly. That's another thing we do in preparation. We figure out which questions we're going to ask in which in order. What order? Because if you if you have somebody shut down five minutes into the interview, well, it doesn't matter if you've got another twenty asked you that. You're not really going to get anything good out of them. So um, that's another thing we take into account when we're. Talk about that pacing. You you do it to sort of elicit certain answers, I, I assume, but you also sort of pace the interview for for the audience, right? You you don't start off with the lead question necessarily, right? It it, de- yeah. it depends again on what you're trying. But to- it, it's orchestrated in a way. In a way, yeah. Um, you know, it depends a little bit on 
what your if it's a live interview or something that's on tape that you can cut up later, I would say that's a big factor. Yeah. Um, it is hard to ask a really hard question right out of the gate. I mean, just as a human, you're sitting down with somebody. It's it's plus you get the that immediate reaction. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, the pacing the pacing matters. It's often nice if you if you have the time if you can end on something a little bit lighter and everybody has a laugh. Now, listen, if you're only getting a six-minute interview, you might not have time to do that, but that's a nice thing to be able to do sometimes. So, so yeah, I do think about the pacing, but I also know that in this day and age, so much of what we broadcast ends up getting clipped down to, you know, 35 seconds or a minute and a half and shared on, you know, YouTube. So some of that is lost, even if we even if we do it in for the in-the-momentness of it. It doesn't always live on that way anyway. What happens or what's the difference between a six-minute nightly interview perhaps and uh, a Sunday interview? Are Sunday interviews different for Sunday shows? You know, I think that they used to be a little bit different. I think that the news cycle that we're living in now. The 24-7. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think On steroids and speed. Oh, my gosh. Tom, I have no idea. <laughs> I think that there used to be a sense that these were sort of like for posterity's sake, you know, you wanted to get Senator so-and-so on the record. What is his position on X? I don't know that that exists as much anymore. I mean, we do do longer interviews on Sunday, and I think there's a sense that folks are kind of, you know, it's more of an appointment viewing. And so they're settling in and they're open to a longer interview and more in-depth. Um, one of the things that we sort of developed as we did the show is that, we found it was better to focus on one or two topics and really hone in on that and try and get a straight answer than to touch on the six different things. Right? Yeah, and you don't end up going very deep on any of it or or getting much beyond um, talking points. Also, you know, a lot of people now have, you know, between Sunday to Sunday, they've been on other outlets I think that happens a lot more now. You know, there's more because of cable news, because right. of podcast. There's all these other places for them to have been. So um, it's less about doing this big survey and more about figuring out what's the thing that you really want to hone in on and what's of interest to your audience. I'm sure every producer and, and talent has favorite interviews that they do and somebody that's on the schedule and she'd just go, oh, my God, <laughs> do I have to do this again <laughs> or do I have to do this? So I won't ask you to yeah, name, thank I, God. I, thank I won't you. ask you to name those, but do, do you have people that, that you, you find you have a rapport with and they're easier to interview perhaps than others? Um, or characteristics that you look for that – Besides I mean, your fact that everybody's lying, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that I think that generally politicians that don't have an antagonistic relationship with the press are more interesting to interview. There, you know, there are some people who are so on guard; they're convinced that you're always trying to get them, and as a result, they just don't give you very much yeah. in an interview. Um, so, yeah, I can think of a few folks like that. Um, also, people who don't give interviews that often can can be more compelling because it's just, you know, there's like an aura of mystery and you don't know exactly how they're going to answer your questions. Um, 
So as politicians go, I would say, yeah, as somebody who, who has yeah some authenticity and some charm, obviously, is going to be a little bit more fun than, than somebody who's so very locked if down. if you do politicians, 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 they're, they're, there's a bit of verbal combat in, in a way. Is it difficult then to switch to do a, an interview with somebody who isn't a politician? Yeah, it's to a go, great relief. To, to go back, <laughs> it, it's a relief, but it's got to be a, a, a little bit strange because you have to structure everything differently. Yeah, right? certainly. I mean, if you're doing an interview, you know, as a profile, the kind of questions you're interested in are totally different than than a politician. Um, there's not the same level of kind of performance of, you know, the the back and forth. Um, but frankly, lately, it's been all politics all the time. I mean, there's um, there's so much appetite for politics right now. So it has been um, a big part of what we do. You and I were joking a little bit earlier, but uh, there is truly an exhaustion factor. It, it, is there not? I mean, it, it's just... It's so packed with with news. Let me I just, read something in the New York Times about this guy in Athens who quit the news because he couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm hoping to find him. He used to be one of my students. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> but I, it, let me just give you an example. The other day, and, and I monitored the news all the time for what we do here, and it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And nothing major had come up. And I almost – I actually got a little anxious <laughs> because I thought, okay, is this really a slow news day? And, and can I really take a breath? Or is some bomb going to drop? This is how every reporter in Washington feels at 5 o'clock on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who's getting fired today? It's just so intense. I, I don't think I've ever seen a time. Uh, in in all my long career where it's been this intense. No, I certainly can't remember anything like this. It's got to wear on you, though. Uh, I mean, uh, on all of your senses. Yeah, and on all of my colleagues. I mean, I'm lucky because I'm in a position right now where I'm not in the daily grind as much. But, I mean, our... um, our White House, we, we did a swap of some of the White House folks just because people were so burnt out. I mean, especially at a 24-hour news organization, you can imagine, it just never stops. And to be constantly, you know, on your phone, checking Twitter, being on air, it's just, it's a crazy, it's a crazy news cycle. And to be honest, I don't really see it letting up anytime soon. No, it's probably going to actually no. e- Escalate. Yeah. I mean, I and, do think for viewers and readers, it's been – I hear from a lot more people saying, I just had to opt out. I had to turn off the alerts on my phone. I had to just take a step back. But for journalists, there's no, there's no there's, such thing. There's no step back. And, and you talked about you know, looking at Twitter and being on your phone and – and you're doing that sometimes when you're on the air. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, so not only do you have the person, the, you, talking in the ear, but they're they're checking sources as, as they're going along. Exactly. It literally is news as it's happening. Yeah, no, often. I mean, I, I was watching CNN earlier today, and Gloria Borger was reading a, an email from a source on air as it was coming in. Um, that happens often these days. Now, does that ever make you nervous when that happens uh, because, I mean, you have 
not just you, but the reporters who are covering this are excellent reporters across across the board. But but you know you're getting sources and it's like instantaneous news. Yeah, although that, we do uh, have a lot of vetting systems at CNN. Yeah, 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 very much so. Um, yeah, very much so. That not, nothing really. I mean, I, I guess I'm using a, an example of someone reading something on air, but it would there was more color that they were adding. Basically, there's a there's a rather elaborate system actually that that reporters have to go through before their information goes on air or on CNN.com. I uh, notice though sometimes when I'm when I'm watching uh, CNN or others, you can just see. Some of the reporters, as the week goes on, <laughs> the bags under the eyes are a little more noticeable. They just look weary. They actually look weary. It's a tough. It's a tough job, and a, there's a lot of people at CNN not getting much sleep these days. So, are you still in Washington? I'm still in Washington. Um, I I left the Sunday show. Um, I guess late last year, and now I'm working on special projects. So um, it's great in that it gives me a little bit more time to think broadly about the news. Um, but, you know, you're, I have a, the breaking news gene still. So sometimes when things are really crazy, I'll still run up to the control room. And <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, is it, is it that old movie line where you try to get away and they keep pulling you back? <laughs> well, there's no shortage of stuff to get involved in. Um, Wherever you hear an ambulance, so to speak, exactly. <laughs> you exactly. have that same feeling, right? Exactly. Yeah, don't let my boss hear this. He'll be like, she needs more work. I've got something. <laughs> Special projects, that, that's an interesting area. Do you have uh, uh, really creative license in, in many respects to pitch ideas? And, and yeah, and I find that it's really great because I, I have been at CNN for five years now, so I ha- it's, a, it's a gigantic organization, and it really takes years of working there to fully wrap your mind around it all and to know how it works. Um, so I think that that experience, um, really understanding how the place functions, plus um, knowing how politics works, which is of a, a lot of interest to our viewers, um, plus having an interest in long-form um, journalism, that's a great intersection, and, and my goal is to sort of cross-pollinate a little bit. Um, Tell people a little bit uh, how it works before we end up. What's in What's in Atlanta? What's in Washington? What's in New York for, for CNN? Yeah, well, um, Atlanta is the mothership, and there's still a huge number of folks there, including the entire international outlet. Okay. Um, it's like a little, I always find it's like in Atlanta of all places, it's like a little United Nations <laughs> as you walk around, you hear accents from all over the world. Um, Washington, obviously, is the political. The center, yeah, and the center of the story right now. So we have grown immensely in the past couple of years. I think we have four or five hundred employees just in the Washington bureau. Wow. So it is big. Wow. Yeah, um, and there are several shows that come out of there: The Lead, State of the Union, uh, Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Those all um, come out of Washington. And then um, New York is a, a, lo- a huge hub of journalism. It's also where all of our executive staff is, and 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 the bulk of the other shows. Um, if they're, if you know, Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon, they're all in New York. Um, New Day. So, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a gigantic organization. We also obviously have huge offices overseas, everywhere from Abu Dhabi to London. Um, there are folks working at. CNN all over the world. When you do uh, the specials, the uh, town halls and those kinds of specials, who does the uh, special reports like the Kennedys and, and, and those things? Is, 
are those under your bailiwick? So or? I, so uh, the woman that I work for I oversees all of that. We call it CNN Films and CNN Original Series. Um, so those folks are. Um, you know, it's interesting. They're a big part of the organization. That what they do is so different than the rest. I, of I CNN. was going to say you, you ticked my fancy when you said uh, long form. Yeah, that, exactly. I mean, and they're doing some really interesting work, and it's so interesting because on air, what you see uh, every day at CNN is minute to minute what's happening, and these projects often are two years in the making. The one about the Pope, the one about the Kennedys. Exactly. Uh, yeah. um, exactly. And uh, what what? It, but it's really satisfying to see the audience responding. To both, you know, that there's room in in a news diet for for both the minute to minute and also um, something you can sink your teeth into. And those airing on Sunday evenings sort of give you something right? to chew on before the week starts, right? Exactly, exactly. I'm loving our Sunday night lineup right now. So good. Katie, thank you so much. Thank for you, Tom. With Wonderful me. to see you and be back at WOUB. I'm so glad that you came <laughs> back to see us. Fantastic. Thank you. Today we've been talking with Katie Henman an executive producer of special programming for CNN and a veteran producer of daily and Sunday news programming. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. You can also find our podcast at the NPR Podcast Directory. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 